I'm Sylvia Burgos Tofnes, and this is Deep Roots Radio. Every week, my guests help us connect the dots between what we eat and how it's grown because every single food dollar we spend either protects or degrades the environment, produces foods with high nutrition or empty calories, and either helps pay a fair wage or keeps farm workers among the working poor. We get to make that choice every time we push a cart through the grocery store, visit the farmer's market, and eat at a restaurant. I hope you enjoy this interview. I don't know about you, Dave Corbett, but um, my husband, Dave, Toughness, and I, we view our farming very much in terms of stewardship. Mm -hmm. We've been given the opportunity. We've been given the, the, the privilege to be stewards mm-hmm. on this land. Nobody, uh, nobody owns it forever. No, no, nobody owns it forever. And it's, it's about waking up in the morning and, and really, more than anything, being grateful. Mm-hmm. I, always, I always think of it in these terms. Wow, I've been invited along for the ride. Right. This has been <laughs> such a privilege. Yeah. Uh, I've been invited along for the ride. And, and for many people, that is about spirituality. Mm-hmm. And about our connection to that responsibility, that opportunity for stewardship, and the food that's produced. And we have with us in studio today someone to whom that connection, the food, economic justice, social justice, environmental uh, stewardship, and spirituality are intrinsically entwined. And that is Mike Scott. Thank you for being here, Mike. Thanks for the invitation. He is, Mike, you are the uh, Senior Program Director and Events Coordinator for the Farm Table Foundation, uh, which is right across the parking lot from this radio station. It wasn't bad. <laughs> and um, I know some of the listeners who've, who've been kind of tuning in for the last several years are, are a little bit familiar with the Farm Table Foundation, but lots of them aren't, especially since it's gone through a number of beautiful metamorphoses in the last several years. Can you give us a, a really quick description of what the Farm Table Foundation is? Yeah, Farm Table Foundation is both a restaurant as well as a wonderful teaching kitchen and exhibit space. And our mission is to really support the ecology, economy, and health of this community by growing a local food culture. And we do that in a variety of ways. There's some training going on. There's some research on the farm related to seeds and breeds. And there's some community building we're seeking to do right here in Amory. Now, how long have you been with uh, Farm Table so far? About four months. About four months. And previously you were? In Seattle. In Seattle. Tell us a little bit about what you were doing in Seattle. Much of my time there was spent working within the faith-based eco-justice arena, if Mm. you will, Uh, primarily within the Christian community, although there was some interfaith work as well. There's a great organization called Earth Ministry, seeking to connect Christian faith with care and justice for all creation. And then I also worked for the Episcopal Church for four years um, as their national economic and environmental justice officer, so to speak. All right. So for those who may not be familiar with it, this whole notion of of the linkages is nothing new. Mm -hmm. Right. 
No, people have been thinking about this a long time. And certainly I've met other farmers from other parts of the country to whom um, working the land well, and I'm sure that there's a whole lot of definitions about that, is very much linked up to their um, faith. Yeah, indeed. And certainly my, my, my grandparents all grew up farming. Ah, where? Uh, my, my dad's grandfather's farm, mother's and father's farm was in uh, central Minnesota. Okay. Silver Creek, Annandale area. And then my mom's farm was in Pella, Iowa. And both, both families had the farms in their family for over 100 years. They were century farms. Wow. None of those, each family had six kids. None of those 12 kids became farmers, a, a pretty typical scenario, if you will. Right. You know, the economics of farming, as you talked about a little bit in the introduction, not being that uh, attractive. And, um, but I think there's a real loss, sense of loss in our family. Huh. And in some ways that ties into the family's spirituality, if you will. I think a spirituality done well, any spirituality done well, as you mentioned how you do farming well, would be about reconnecting us or connecting us to something deep, whether it's to the divine or to one another or to the land. And I, I think in many ways Western theology has gotten off track in losing that whole sense of relationship with the land, that um, it's all become about, it's become very human-centered. The faith has become very much about almost a personal relationship with God, as if nothing else matters. Mm. Um, but I think a spirituality worth its weight would be one that would say, well, we're, we are built to be in relationship with others. Right. And that means between you and me, it means between ourselves and the divine, however one might define that or experience that. But it also is about relationship with all of creation. Mm -hmm. And I, if you look in, in the tradition I come from, in the biblical Christian tradition, there's all sorts of both theology and scripture that mm -hmm. would support that. But it's not really talked about uh, that much. That has changed some in the last 25 years or so, I'd say. But... But it's, it's still uh, not a really pervasive theme when you walk into a church, let's say. Yeah. It's amazing, as you were kind of describing that, I was thinking about the, so, the, the many kind of social structures that have uh, been fostered in America, which is the only real culture that I'm familiar with, mm -hmm. that has tended to create pockets of specialization that fight against the notion of integration of, of things. So everybody is specialized in a field, uh, so much so that they don't even talk to one another within the same discipline. Yeah. For example, uh, you may have a university where you've got 400 professors, each one is highly, highly, highly specialized, and when it comes to talking about uh, an issue or a topic that crosses various kinds of specialties, sometimes those conversations are really difficult yeah. because we're so used to looking at a narrow, narrow field. That is true in, in, our, in our work lives. For example, um, in other countries, in other cultures, people sometimes patch together their their uh, revenue 
by doing this and that and something else. Even a farmer 200 years ago not only grew corn and raised cows, but may have operated a sawmill, may have had eggs to take to the market, may have been the baker of the, of the town. And so it was not unusual to have a number of revenue streams where you, yeah, maybe specialized in one or two, but you actually had other things coming in. We have come to a time in, uh, at least our culture, it seems, where we've been so highly specialized, you don't know about what it is around you. And certainly that whole idea when it comes to land and when it comes to agriculture has been exacerbated by the fact that so few, so such a small proportion of the American population farms. Yeah. You know, I was looking, um, Mike, at a uh, part of a book that you wrote. It was an essay within it that mentioned those kinds of numbers. Yeah. In fact, you, you, and I'm quoting here, between 1910 and 1920, the United States had 32 million farmers living on farms. And that accounted for about one-third of the population at that time. By 1991, the number was only 4.6 million, or less than 2% of our population. And that number has continued to decline, so that we are now about 1% of the population, farmers are. And so that familiarity with where your food comes from and how you have a responsibility and relationship with the land, um, it's diminishing. Yeah, Wendell Berry now calls us industrial eaters uh, and says we're, we don't really realize that every time we eat, we're actually participants in agriculture. Uh, so an industrial eater really doesn't know anything about their food, essentially, right? And we've, we have created a specialized system that does allow us to become more and more divorced from the source of, of what nourishes us. Now, so what is the farm table and the programming doing to try to address some of this? And you're doing it in such a, a gentle and, I think, exciting way. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, so we recently had a, a program retreat, and we talked together about how would we want to think about our programming such that it would make sense to us, but also to people around us? All right, and this is and the staff at the this farm This is table. the staff, yeah. And we, we came up with what we're calling the four C's. Oh, okay. Uh, in terms of, uh, and we talked about community, craft, conservation, and a food culture. Okay. Um, but the kinds of programming we have, we can get back to those four C's in a minute if you want, but we have things like, an adult yoga class, mm -hmm. and that class is going to focus on, in a sense, uh, nourishment and replenishing ourselves. Uh, when you talked about the challenges that farmers face, I often wonder if what what could Farm Table do to support farmers at that level of, you know, even even one's what overall well-being. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's an image of farmers sometimes as being stoic individualists, but I would I think there's also Oh, and a real, real awareness of, of interdependence uh, because farmers are so aware of they are dependent upon things outside their control. Mm -hmm. the, the, like you just talked about, the rain or you know, the soil, the things that help them live their lives. 
So there's an, a recognition of interdependence and uh, responsibility, and I think there's a need to maybe be supporting farmers, and how could Farm Table do that? That's something I'm interested in. But we've also got um, uh, making sausage and making jerky class coming up. So cool. we see, you know, local food is what's grown and raised, but it's also recognizing that there is food that's that's on this land. And if done respectfully and with gratitude, as you put it, waking up in the morning with gratitude, I can see how, you know, hunting is a real part mm -hmm. of this local food culture. And we want to, okay, how would we make venison uh, really tasty and get some of that venison out of folks' freezers, for example. Mm -hmm. um, we also have Lunch and Learns, where uh, Terry Keltzer, a really um, wonderful lady and woman in town, will teach us about making interesting local local foods, mm -hmm. but also intertwine it with the traditions and culture of this place. Right. Yeah, so she, she uh, tends to do things along the Scandinavian tradition. She does, yes. We yes. have a Scandinavian cookie class in December, for example. We have a Making Lefsa class. And, of course, the her passion and ours, our shared passion, is that we draw on local foods as much as possible within those classes. Mm -hmm. So trying to reconnect people to what's available here for example, the flour that we use is milled close by in Minnesota. It's all organic. It's also heritage, so it's non-hybridized wheat. The folks who run that Sunrise Flour Mill mm -hmm. say that there are a good number of people that buy their flour from them are able to eat that bread, but even though there's gluten in it, but they are, they're gluten intolerant with other breads. So there's something going on there. there so that's is. just one example of, of supporting a local business mm -hmm. through making bread right and when when terry does classes on left so she'll be using that for example we also um we also bring in the arts we've got a nature illustration workshop coming up we've got an, a gallery space where we exhibit art that connects with that mission of of local food and preserving and conserving natural resources around us um so those are some of the the flavor the kinds of classes we have i'm also we're also interested in uh, offering workshops for farmers. We have a grant out with Family Farmed mm -hmm. out of Chicago. And if we get that grant th through them, we would be offering a, some workshops on direct and wholesale marketing, as well as on food safety. I mean, when you think about farming, that's maybe not the romantic side, right? It's the but business it's side. It's the business side, and you've got to know how to handle food safely so it gets to the consumer safely. And how are you going to market? How are people going to find out about you? So... Um, we're hoping to be able to offer workshops like that this year as well. Well, I'm going to throw out a, a request sure. on something that could be done with agritourism. Uh -huh. Because there may be some money from, um, from the state sources on that. Okay. Yeah. yeah Are you suggesting we look into that? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> yes, I am. Um, <laughs> Thanks for that tip. You bet. All right, so you've got these various events coming up, and, and they help us understand that connection to the farmer. And you've got one, I think, uh, even scheduled for August. Indeed, yes. So tell us a little bit about that one. Good point. A uh, week from today, uh, August 11, uh, Carrie uh, Wenger and Peter Henry, the founders of this organization, have a lovely farm and barn out outside of Amory. Right. And we're going to be having uh, what we call our Eat Local harvest dinner this will be sort of a later summer midsummer harvest dinner so drawing on foods that are being grown and harvested right now mm -hmm. 
um, and our our chef Karen and some of her colleagues will be whomping up a great feast for us. We'll also oh. be offering a farm tour and time also after dinner to gather around a bonfire and just have a good time together. Right. So we will integrate, you know, what's going on on the farm with some words from a local farmer saying a bit about who they are and why they do what they do. So we, we seek to integrate our mission, of course, with just a celebration of delicious food. And there's still some tickets available. Oh, so. good. Because I've been to one of these a couple of years ago, and one, the setting is just beautiful. Yeah. The food is to die for. And it is such a uh, community building, or what can I say? There's so much conversation going on around the table, and you're meeting people from all different places. You're sitting down and having this great meal, and you're served. I mean, it is just just marvelous what a great way to get introduced to farming indeed and, and to farm table so we'd love to, to invite you to come to that if you're able yes and oh. you can always check out our website farm table foundation for that information about that kind of those events and others okay so yeah. this is foundation farm t no excuse farm. me let's start that again yep. it's farm table foundation dot org. dot org that's right so if you want to find out about the various events and classes about the gallery space mm -hmm. and about what's going to be on the restaurant's menu, because Indeed. you can have a link there, you're looking at the farmtablefoundation.org. Now, does the, uh, the menu at the restaurant, does that uh, change according to season then? or? Yeah, great question, uh, Dave. In, indeed, it does. That's, <laughs> we, we recently came up with an organizational structure, and Somewhat jokingly, but somewhat seriously, we had the tomato at the center. Uh, <laughs> so we don't bow down to the tomato, but we do respect it a lot. Um, and uh, in some ways, I guess you could say we're, we're seeking to take our cue from what is being harvested at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we actually keep track of the percentages of how much food at the mm -hmm. restaurant is, is actually local. And frankly, I'm not sure exactly how we define that, how many miles. But yes, we... It's pretty close in. It's very close in. Mm -hmm. uh, the farmers that supply the farm table restaurant, there's a, there's a co-op that operates out of the back of the restaurant. It's a separate organization, the Hungry Turtle Farmers Co-op. Um, there are about 12 or 13 farmers that participate right. in that, and they're all within 20 miles, I suspect. Um, the restaurant buys a good amount of its food from that co-op. Uh, so, yes, uh, Dave, our menu changes seasonally. This summer, we've even been updating it every five weeks uh, to reflect what's, what's out there. Hmm. This is such a huge challenge because in as much as your excellent chef and the programming works very, very diligently to make those connections to the land, to the season, to the farmers, one of the things that may take a bit longer to change maybe it won't maybe you can tell me about this might be the consumer culture what they're used to eating yeah well and you know you, you made that you quoted a piece from my article um, and how in 1910 to 1920 there were a third of us were farming I don't remember the specifics on this either and I, I should but in in that time frame the early 1900s we spent a, much more of our income, frankly, on food. Yes, we did. Um, and it was, it was a different kind of food. I mean, 
you know, chemicals and so on came into the agricultural, became an industry more um, after World War II. Right. But, you know, we have the word organic on our, on the, on the window outside our, our, our restaurant. But maybe we should just have, you know, food like your grandparents grew it and knew it. Mm. Because essentially, you know, they didn't even have that, those chemicals as an option. Right. They knew how to farm in a way that, as you put it earlier, was, was more diverse and more integrated in a sense and um, more resilient. But in a sense, organic is simply how your grandparents grew and knew and ate food. So um, it's not a scary sort of, right. you know, different kind of thing. It's really something deep in our roots in terms of what organic means. But in terms of changing consumer culture, that's part of it is changing our sense of our perceptions and our sense of divisions in our in our country right now. Yeah, it's um, it's it's an interesting challenge uh, because the fewer people you have connected or working directly with the land, the less you may know how much work it takes to grow food. Yeah. And it was because people were growing food uh, using labor. Yeah. And other management schemes instead of chemicals and big machinery. That's right. That it took longer to grow food. You grew different varieties of food. Uh, you didn't grow as much of one thing as another. For example, when we just think about a statement that has been repeated again and again and again and again for the last 70 years, which is Roosevelt saying, you know, there'll be a chicken in every pot. Mm-hmm. What is what was the context of that statement? It meant that people didn't have chicken. They didn't have a chicken in every pot. That was going to be a big deal. Yeah. They ate less meat. And chicken was really expensive because chickens, if you're not doing it with a lot of chemicals and you're not doing it in a big barn, take a lot of work. And Similarly, the kind of beef that you raise, Sylvia and Dave, if I've learned recently from you that you, it needs an extra winter. That's right. If you're not feeding it grain uh, and corn and so on, if they're grass-fed, which is sort of how they're built, right? Right. Um, it's going to take an extra winter. And so there's more time and labor involved in that, maybe needing to buy some more hay because it's over another winter. So, you know, we when we don't know all those facts... It's easy just to choose the cheapest right. item of item of food. And if we even move away from livestock, yeah, let's take a look at corn. Yeah. Let's take a look at at green beans. Okay. <laughs> you have some experience, Mike, in in harvesting green beans. How much work is that? It's a pain. <laughs> <laughs> so when we were growing up, <laughs> when we were growing up, we my parents they grew up on farms and they still grow most of their own food and they're eighty. And very healthy and vigorous, thankfully. Um, but they used, as we would thought of it as cheap child labor, uh, those rows of beans seemed interminable because the beans are the same color as the plants, and you've got to bend over, and it, even for kids, it gets so tired on your back. And anyway, you're right. It's, it's a labor-intensive operation, if you will, process to grow green beans and, and then harvest them. Yep. I remember <laughs> how much my daughter loved Harvesting green beans. <laughs> yeah, you did it to the, your kids too. I, I would say, "Come on, Meg, we're going to go out and get green beans." And I mean, I could see her 
her just whole demeanor just like wilting. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> and those rows were long for kids. Oh, my goodness. And I'd say, we'd get to the end of the row, and I'd say, okay, now let's turn around and do it again because we missed everything that we didn't see. And you had to plow through it another time. Yeah, and, and they were tough. Well, and there were always <laughs> beans. Indeed, right. There yeah. were always beans. And once you got those green beans into the house, they needed to be cleaned. They needed to be trimmed. Snapped, yeah. Mm-hmm. They, and if you weren't cooking them for that evening's meal, you needed to preserve them in some fashion. So you pickled them or you canned them. Um, you froze them. And that was a lot yeah. of work. Right. A lot of work. And what you, the process you described, you know, uh, in a way our system has allowed us to become uh, more streamlined and simple. But you, what, what has been removed from that system is a set of relationships. When you go buy that green bean that's been processed and frozen or whatever, you don't really know who the farmer is. You don't know if it was grown in a way that's healthy for people or the labor that grew it, right? You don't know if it's good for the land and the soil or the water. You know that when you do your own or you support a local farmer. Yes. There's a set of relationships there that have been reconnected. And going back to spirituality, a healthy spirituality would be about reconnecting those relationships that have been broken. And I think that the kind of food that embodies and allows us to see that is really worth supporting. Thank you, Mike. We've been chatting with Mike Scott, who is the Senior Program Director and Coordinator of Events at the Farm Table Foundation. Mike, can you give us that um, website again and the date of the upcoming dinner? You bet. The upcoming dinner is August 11. That's a week from tonight, 5 o'clock at the the Hungry Turtle Institute's farm. Our website is farmtablefoundation.org. Thank you so much, Is there directions to the farm on the website? There are, and you can click on the, there's a a place to click, and you'll get directions. Okay. Through the Eventbrite. Right, and if you're confused by the, anything that you see on the website, there is also a phone number there. Yeah, you can call us at 715-268-3483. Thank you very much, Mike. Visit my website, bronxtobarn.com, to download this and past interviews to learn about my farm, and to reserve 100% grass-fed beef. We deliver to Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks.